Well, good morning, church. There's a philosophy professor uh, who teaches at Boston College, and he asked his students one semester to write an essay about a moment in their life where they struggled with right and wrong, where in a moment they had to choose either to do something that they think is wrong and then kind of the battle that goes on internally for them to choose what is right, the battle of good and evil. But most of the students, or a good portion of the students, were unable to complete that assignment and write that essay. And when he asked the students, why can't you complete this assignment? Apparently they said, well, we haven't done anything wrong. And then the professor commented, we can see a lot of self-esteem here, but little self-awareness. Now we hear that, we mock these students. How could they find themselves so morally superior and pure that they're unsure if they've ever done something evil or something wrong? And though this philosophy class apparently appears to be very unself-aware, we often have the same exact problem. We often do not see our own wrongdoings. We often do not see how we are off-putting to people, or we hear how our tone is offensive. It takes someone to say something to us about our wrongdoings, and then even then, we may not even listen to them. We are very unaware. Fifteen years ago, a very important study was done by a man named Christian Smith. He surveyed and studied about 3,000 average American teenagers. And he asked them a series of questions, spent hours in conversation with them, and after reviewing all the material for a long time, he found that there's a, a common thread of beliefs in the average American teenager about God, religion, and morality. There's five common beliefs. And he called these beliefs moralistic, therapeutic deism. And these are the five basic beliefs of these American teenagers. Number one, there's a God who exists, who created, orders, and watches over the world. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be involved particularly in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And good people go to heaven when they die. Now, it is very easy for us to hear these five beliefs and to shake our heads in disbelief and mockery at these average American teenagers. Now, not all teenagers believe this, but a large portion of teenagers believe some of these. But before we mock them, I want us to remember this, that we in this room are the parents and grandparents of these teenagers. They don't learn all this in a vacuum. But what we see overall in these five beliefs is what I would call as an inflated self-esteem and a deflated self-awareness. These five beliefs say we're all good and nice people and I'm going to do everything I can for me to feel good, for me to be happy, for me to look good about myself. And there's this God, right? He's, yeah, I believe in a higher power. He's not really caring about what I do, right or wrong. He has no authority over me, but when I find myself in a pickle, I can pick up the phone, call him, he'll help me out, and then he'll say, go on your own way, call me whenever you need me. And even for Christians, Christian adults, not just teenagers, 
we have this same root issue and beliefs in this study. We have little self-awareness of our mess and our sin. We often forget that true authority lies not in us, but in God, that God does have a right and a wrong, and we are not exempt from the right and the wrong. And our goal in life is not to feel good about ourselves. But our goal in life should be to worship and to submit to God our King. But we too fall into the belief, the myth, that God is not a king, but He's a genie in a bottle for when I need Him. When we strip God in our minds of His authority and kingship, we also are stripping ourselves of our own self-awareness. We no longer see our sin. We no longer see we're headed down a dangerous path towards disaster. We no longer have God up in our minds on the front seat where he should be. But we elevate ourselves and put ourselves there. And that only brings chaos and disaster. Self-awareness is what makes Christianity so unique and so difficult. And yet so beautiful. Christianity is for those who are honestly self-aware and realize they have sin and they need God. That's it. That's where God wants us to be. Self-aware, honestly saying, I have all this guilt and baggage and shame, and God says, come to me. Christianity is not a self-help religion. This morning, we're going to study the first five chapters in the book of Isaiah, and we're going to instantly see that the people of God are unable to see their own sin, and God is going to show them their sin so they will run to Him and not run far from Him as they have been. And we're going to see that the problem of being unable to see our sin, the problem of elevating ourselves higher than we should be, is not the problem invented by American teenagers. It's several thousands years old. So if you have a Bible, please open up to Isaiah chapter 1. I encourage you, if you do have a Bible near you, to grab it. There's one in the pews or under your chairs. It's on page 566. We're going to spend 10 weeks working through the book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters. Um, If you were here last week, you should have this Isaiah sermon schedule guide, so I would encourage you to read through the passage prior to the Sunday. If you don't have one of these, there's some out on the table out there in the lobby. The first 37 chapters of the 66 chapters focus on God as king, how he is in authority, how he is perfect, how he is holy, how there is no one like him. And we're going to see that very clearly here in the first five chapters. Now we're going to start off reading here a couple verses out of chapter 1. But we're going to be flipping throughout the first five chapters, so have that Bible ready. Let's look first at chapter 1 of Isaiah, verses 1 to 4, and then we'll do verses 10 to 14. This is the word of the Lord. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, 
offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fats of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask you to use your word this morning to teach us, rebuke us, and train us in righteousness. Spirit, help us. Amen. The book of Isaiah begins with God looking down from his throne at his people, and what he sees is not good. His own people have rebelled against him, the king, and these five chapters reflect the passage we just read. God is perfect, the people have sinned, and God hates their sin. And these are a five, these are a serious five chapters. Five chapters that should give us true, honest self-awareness. That God is king and God is holy, and I'm not. We're going to read several other sections within these five chapters, but I want to give you the main point of all five chapters and the main point of this sermon. Here it is. To be found guilty before the king of the world is a serious and terrifying matter. The good news is that this king will also set us free from this guilt. To be found guilty before the king is a serious and terrifying matter. But this same king will set us free. We see in verse 1 that Isaiah is a prophet. God has given him words. He's given him a vision to speak to the people of Judah. And next week we're going to learn more about Isaiah himself in chapter 6. But we see right away that through Isaiah, God is speaking with absolute authority. That he is the king. And he's calling his people to come before him at his throne. And as the people come and gather before the Lord, he describes to them what he sees in them. And it's not good news. For us to better understand these five chapters, I want us this morning to picture a courtroom. And there is God sitting up on the bench as the king judging. And he's gathered all of his people to come sit before him. And he's going to give his authoritative declaration about them. And the very first thing that God, that God does, the king, as he gathers us in his courtroom, is he pronounces his judgment. The judgment of the king. A judgment is a formal pronouncement, an official declaration, authoritative decision. And we just read this initial judgment in chapter 1. In verse 4, God says, here's the judgment. My people are sinful. They are laden, as it says, or covered or consumed with iniquity and evil. They've rejected and they've despised, forsaken the holy God. And despite being called his people, they have said no to God. So God declares in his courtroom, 
you, my people, are guilty. And before the people can stand up and say, wait, we have excuses, God says, here's all of the evidence for why I declared this judgment. In verses 10 and 14, God says, the people appear righteous. They're holy. They're good. They look like that. In verse 10, it says they give a multitude of sacrifices. They give the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. It says in verse 12 that this people come before God to the temple of God. In verse 14, they celebrate the feasts and the holy days. And yet, despite all of that religious activity, God says, you are sinners. You have forgotten me. You are found guilty. God says all that religious stuff and those habits and those rituals, they're all done in vain because you're doing them without actual love for God. Verse 13, the sacrifices were done in vain, not done because they adore God, but done out of this habitual, boring routine. In verse 13, at the end, God says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. What this means is the people of God are showing up in solemn or serious gatherings. They're showing up with their best clothes on, with their faces ready to worship, and yet they're coming, looking holy and righteous, yet they were just sinning and sinning and sinning. And God says all of this worship and religious practices become void if your heart is far from me. They were coming and doing all the sacrifices and praying, and yet their heart was in a completely different zip code. God is declaring that the people's hearts are loving sin and other idols. So when they show up to the temple of God, their heart is not fixed on God. God doesn't want sacrifices if the people don't want God. Sacrifices are not the point. Sacrifices and praying and reading the Bible has never been the point. The person's heart is the point, and all these other things are the instruments, the vehicles to make our hearts swell up in love more. God wants our heart, not our rituals. Have you ever become so into your routine or your job that you can complete the task without even consciously thinking about the task? Have you ever turned on your lawnmower and then before you know it, you're putting it back in the garage and you don't remember any of the specific lines or rows in the lawn that you actually mowed? You just kind of checked out. Maybe you're working on a spreadsheet or you're getting work ready on your computer and before you know it, an hour's gone by and you don't remember anything that you've done, but it's done. Or the scary one is maybe you don't remember driving to church today. You're here safely, praise the Lord, but you don't remember any turn. You don't remember stopping at red lights. You have no idea if you blew through intersections, but you're here. We do this with God. We become so consumed with ourselves, our lives, our sin, that we come to church and we don't even think about God while we're here. Or we open our Bible as a ritual, but we're not actually loving God. We had no self-awareness. Now, we don't offer sacrifices anymore. We don't climb up the steps to the temple anymore as a ritual. And yet, we suffer from this same issue that we can so easily separate our heart from Christianity. We can look the part. Okay, I, I went to church. I read my Bible. I'm a good person. 
And yet my heart never swells up in love and affection and desire for God. And we can kind of do this Christian thing in cruise control. And yet God looks at us and says, I don't want your church attendance. I don't want your Bible reading or your good deeds. If you're doing it for yourself and not for me. If you're doing it without heart for me, then what's the point of doing it in the first place? By the way, this can happen to me or any preacher. We can make a sermon, we can write it out, we can type it out, and yet if my heart is not there, the Lord says, why are you even doing it? We get good at cruise control Christianity. Recently, Alan and I were driving my minivan on a quick road trip. To sight to see, by the way. And Alan was driving, by the way, this is for the record, Alan was driving the van. We were in I-39 in northern Illinois, going through small town after small town. He had cruise control set, sitting back, kind of relaxing. We're talking, and then all of a sudden, something happened. The van's cruise control started malfunctioning and not working, and the, the symbol on the dash began to flash at us. And for the rest of the drive, we could not use the cruise control. We actually had to drive our own car. Maybe this passage is kind of like that blinking light showing me that my cruise control is not working. Maybe this passage is for us as Christians saying, the Christian life on cruise control is dangerous and is not ideal. Where is our heart? When our hearts become distracted by the world, distracted by our success, distracted by sin or idols, our heart strays from God. The very thing that God wants us is our heart. So when our heart is not fixed upon Him, we're like the people of Judah, condemned and judged in the courtroom of God. And God says, you are guilty. You are full of sin. Your hearts are far from me. So what comes in the courtroom after you are pronounced guilty? Your sentencing. Your sentencing. The sentence from the king. When a judge, a king, declares someone guilty, a consequence, a sentence comes next. And the overall sentencing and consequence is found in chapter 5, verse 15. Skip over a couple pages. Chapter 5, verse 15. So people will be brought low, and everyone humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled, but the Lord Almighty will be exalted by His justice, and the Holy God will be proved holy by His righteous acts. Our God, this King, is a holy and righteous God. And that is why he sentences us. That's why he punishes sin. And when anyone in the people of Judah or Israel or Egypt or America or you or me oppose this God of holiness, God will demand justice. A holy God cannot be okay with unholiness. There's going to be a humbling, a consequence, a just act. So God is telling the people of Judah through Isaiah that because they are sinners opposing God, despite the fact they claim to be his people, that God is going to humble them. They will be made low. They will come to grips with true, utter self-awareness. They will realize that God is an authority, that sin is serious, that they need to give their entire heart to God. Now, how does God humble the people of Judah here? 
What is his sentencing, his consequence for their unfaithfulness? And are these consequences or effects the same for us today? I think in these five chapters, we see at least three ways in which Judah is going to feel the consequences of rejecting, Ju- of rejecting God. Three ways. Number one, firstly, the people of Judah are going to be overtaken by enemy nations. Historically, Isaiah is saying that soon enough, Israel, other nations are going to come in and they're going to overpower you and capture you and exile you and you will no longer be in your land, but you will be in someone else's land as their slaves. And this does happen about a hundred years after Isaiah writes these words and speaks these words. It's called the Babylonian exile. So God is saying as a consequence for their sin and unfaithfulness to him, he's going to give them over to their sin and they're going to be captured and then they're going to see, hey, if I don't obey God, if I don't love God, disaster awaits. Sometimes God allows our sin to go farther than we want it to go so that our eyes will open up and see we don't want sin, we want God. So here in 100 years, these people of Israel are going to be overtaken by Assyria. And not in their land anymore. Why? Because they chose idols and sin before God. Now, does God do this for us today? Does God use life circumstances to point out our sin and help us feel the ill effects of sin? I believe he does. Now, is every unfortunate thing that happens to you a consequence for sin? Absolutely not. Is your sickness or loss of a loved one or the fact that you can't get your lawnmower started this afternoon, a consequence for your sin? Probably not. But God sometimes allows our sin to run its course so that we will see that in the end, sin is not worth it. There's a reason why we sometimes get pulled over for speeding. Maybe you getting pulled over for being busted with a DUI is to show you that drunkenness is a serious thing. Sometimes we do face real-life consequences, and God uses those to prune us and to wake us up. So we see here, God will at times use nations or things in the world to show us the seriousness of our own sin. In hopes that we will have true self-awareness that will drive us to running to Jesus. But secondly, we see the other consequence or sentence from God is that they will lose their joy if they pursue sin. As the people of Judah was turning to other nations, as they were turning to sin, as they were turning to themselves, they lost their joy. In chapter 5, God uses beautiful imagery about how he views his people as a gardener views his vineyard. And God creates the vineyard and he clears out of stones and he waters it and he pours his life into this vineyard so that it will produce great grapes. And it looks beautiful, it's beautiful scenery. And yet this very vineyard, this people rejected God. They chose sin besides God. And what is the consequence? A lack of joy and a lack of fruit. Look in chapter 5, verse 6. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. 
No longer is this vineyard growing full of grapes. No longer is it peaceful and of beautiful scenery. No, now there are thorns, dead plants. It is ugly. It is missing the joy that it had. This is what sin does to the people of Judah and to us. It costs us joy. And sin promises us so much joy, and it leaves us empty in the end. It offers fun or feeling, offers experiences. And then what happens the more and more you get into it? You spiral down towards disaster. God often lets us have sin go a little more than we want it to, so that we can see that sin is simply a thorny vineyard. And we realize that without God, we have no joy. Sin is a lot like double bubble gum. At first, it is flavorful and fun and enjoyable, and it hits the spot. But then what happens? Seven seconds go by, and then you're looking for a trash can. It promises more than what it can ever deliver. And sin is like this. It attracts us, and we hold on to it, and yet our joy slips. And the consequence is we lose out on the joy of our salvation. But the the third and the last consequence we see, the third sentencing, for the people of Judah is one to come. In chapter 2, verses 12 to 22, God declares that on the last day, which means when Jesus returns, God is going to display his anger and his terror on those who have ultimately rejected him. Isaiah is saying that there are some of those who are living in Judah, living as neighbors with other Israelites, and yet they're not actually saved. They may look the part, they may offer sacrifices, but if their heart never turns to God, they are going to face his wrath and his terror. Now at times, even us as Christians... We fall into sin, but there's also some of us who may look the part and yet are not the part. So be warned. God says his terror is going to be upon them. Look just at a couple of these verses. Chapter 2, verse 20 and 22. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? The terror of the Lord will be unleashed on that last day against all who oppose Him. And this terror is so fierce and powerful that Isaiah says people are going to drop whatever they have to go find cover, to go find protection. And the clefts of the cliffs and the caverns of the rocks will not be able to protect anyone from this terror because God hates sin and He hates unholiness and all who are there on that last day opposing Him are going to experience His terror. This is true of the people of Judah in 700 BC, and it's true of the people in 2021. The Lord is a holy God, and He hates sin, and He will judge those who stand opposed to Him. This is the sentencing for the guilty. All humans 
Whether you are in church every Sunday or you're never in church, whether you like God or you don't like God, whether you believe the Bible is real or not, these first two points of this sermon are for all humans at all times. All humans are guilty before God. And we have heard the judgment of our king, and he's telling us what our sentencing is going to look like. And we have to either sooner, but for sure later, deal with our choosing of sin over God. Now I'm going to let you in on a little preacher's secret. I've been told that the goal of preaching is simple. It's to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. The goal of preaching, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And so far, Isaiah, the prophet and the preacher, has attempted to afflict us. For those of us who are maybe comfortable in our religion and our Christian habits and our hypocrisy and our sin, he wants us to be offended. He wants us to wake up and say, wait a minute, are you attacking me? He wants us to come up out of our pews and see, oh, wow, yes, I have offended God. I've become comfortable with my sin. I've become comfortable with my hypocrisy. And yet, like a good preacher, Isaiah doesn't leave them afflicted. But he offers them comfort for that affliction. But we can't receive comfort if we don't see ourselves as afflicted. Grace is useless if you have no need for it. If you're unable to see that you are in this condition, then the rest of this sermon and the rest of this passage is just going to be done in vanity for you. I pray you'll still listen. But if you don't see that you have sin and that you have rebelled against a holy God, then you're not going to be comforted by this. Isaiah reminds us that our king, though he has evidence of our sin stacked up against us, he loves us. And he wants us to see that life with him is way more enjoyable and beautiful than life with sin and disaster. So there we are, right, in the courtroom. There's God up on the bench, evidence of our sin all around us. And we are just waiting for God to to handcuff us and take us into the back room and just display his wrath for us for the rest of our lives. But before we're taken to go see his terror and his wrath, God says, wait, let me describe to you this wonderful life you can still have with me. Forget all that evidence stacked up. You can have a beautiful and a glorious life with me. So Isaiah is saying, hey, those of you who are afflicted, be ready to be comforted. We'll call this next section the freed life with the king. We are shackled by our sin, and yet our king wants us to envision our freedom with him. He said that we don't have to go on the path that we're on. The path that's leading towards disaster doesn't have to be our reality. The king has a kingdom and wants us to be a part of it, despite our spin, despite what we've done, despite what we deserve. Look at chapter 4. Verses 2 to 6. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. 
And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. So think about what we read in chapter 2 about the terror of the Lord sweeping across the land or the imagery in chapter 5 of the vineyard full of thorns and no fruit. Compare that to this imagery right here. Here, verse 2, a beautiful and glorious land with a land full of fruit. The people are not going to be called sinners as they were in chapter 1, but they're going to be called holy. There'll be cleansing. There's going to be the glory of God. The glory of God beautifully covering over the people. He's going to be a refuge and a shelter to them. We're not going to have to find shelter under a cavern or a cleft of a rock. God will be our comfort. There's so much imagery used here, but Isaiah has given us the idea that we are going to be set free from the storms and the heat of life, and we're going to be fully in the glory of God. That's what verse 5 is about, as if God's going to be like a fire leading us all the time, and His glory or His very presence will be like a canopy. There's never going to be a moment where we don't experience Him. Right now, you may come into this place thinking, I wish I could see God. I wish I could hear God talk to me. I wish I could feel his presence in this moment. Well, there's going to be a day where that feeling of not feeling God is no longer going to be a feeling that ever exists again. God's beautiful and glorious and perfect uh, identity is going to be fully experienced by us at all times. So the joy that you crave, the delight you want in God, the love that you want to feel from God is going to be yours at all times on full blast. And all this distraction and hardship and sin, everything that attempts to rob God from his beauty will be removed. There'll be nothing to hide God from us, nothing to filter down the joy of the Lord. And there was going to be no desire in our hearts to look for cheap, unsatisfying joys. It'll be us and God forever. So friends, it comes down to the question of honest, real self-awareness. Are you truly satisfied with yourself and your life and your world as it is now? Does picturing this image of beauty and joy and peace and refuge create even a sliver of hope or excitement in you? Does picturing the love and beauty and laughter of God excites you at all that this can be your future? Or if we're really, truly honest, maybe we say we're okay with cruise control Christianity. But are you truly satisfied? Is there more? Are you okay with how the world is, with all of its cancer and all of its disappointments and all of its uh, broken hearts and all of its letdowns? Are you okay with that? 
And we at times as humans, we're kind of like that, that leprechaun trying to get the pot of gold under the rainbow. By the time we get over to the other end of the rainbow, we've realized the pot of gold has moved back to the other side. And our entire life is back and forth trying to find satisfaction and joy. And the world keeps taking it away from us. We will never find fulfillment and satisfaction and the joy we crave because of our sin. And that's what caused C.S. Lewis to write, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Do you agree with that? Or are you just okay with your baggage and our sins and our addictions and the hurt we've caused others, the anger and the lust and the gossip and the pride? Or are you intrigued and curious about this glorious life you can have with God where these other things cease to exist, where he welcomes us into his heavenly city and we, leave, we, we laugh and we breathe and we skip and we do all these things with abundant happiness and we don't have to live in a world full of disappointments and darkness with no hope. We can have hope in this city where God's own glory and presence is covering us like a canopy and that gets to be our hometown forever. But as a Christian, does this imagery excite you? If we are truly honest and we come to the conclusion that this imagery does not excite us, I want to say thank you for being honest. Being honest, having self-awareness is the first step to feeling excitement. But there are times where we come to church and we read our Bibles, and yet our hearts are not awakened to His beauty. So, that if, it, so that, if that's you, which it's me a lot of the time, what do you do? My suggestion to you is to honestly pray to God. Pray to God saying, I don't feel excited about you. When I read this book, I get nothing from it. I want to feel something. Help me. Show me your beauty. Open my eyes. I think if we come to God with honesty and self-awareness, He receives us and changes us. God does stuff with honest people. He transforms them. And by the way, prayer is a hard habit to keep up if your heart's not there. I also believe that if you feel like you're just in a religious habit and you're not really in love with God, that you should still come to church, you should read your Bible, but you do it with every step to sit in that pew, you say, God, teach me something. God, give me joy. God, I'm not hungering for you. Give me a hunger. We don't quit on Christianity. We don't feel like it. Trust more of your body than your heart in that moment. So get to church. Put your butt in a pew and pray. And you know what God might do? Give you that hunger. Give you that thirst. Excite you. King David himself wrote, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Pray that. And Christian, if you want to feel God and you want to experience his joy, then you must kill the very sin that's opposed to him. We need to become blind to the distractions that attempt to rob our heart of God's joy. We have a free life with the king. It's ours. It's our future. So do all that we can now to experience it. 
the king is offering to enslaved criminals of sin a passport into his beautiful kingdom. Into this freed life with him, the opposite of what we deserve, and yet it can be ours. This freedom and beautiful city and this peace can be yours, and all it takes is a pardon from our king. Soon after Isaiah condemned the people, he gave them a way out of condemnation. Yes, God is a holy God full of terror and wrath on those who resist Him. And yet this same God, this King, has made an absolute amazing offer of grace and pardon to sinners. And they do not have to continue in unsatisfaction or head towards disaster, nor find themselves condemned to hell, but can be freed and pardoned and dearly adored. Last passage, chapter 1, verse 16. What I love about this book of Isaiah is, yes, these first five chapters are serious. And yet, it doesn't take till the end of Isaiah to get to the grace. Right here in the first chapter, after this judgment, after saying, you are sinners, we have the way out. Look at verse 16, chapter 1. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fathers, plead the widow's case. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Despite all the sin you've done, it doesn't have to be final. You can be washed and clean. You can learn to actually live out the ways of God now. You can join God in justice and correcting oppression and loving the widow. You don't have to live a life marked by sin, but you can live a life full of God. And I love verse 18. God the King says to you, come now, let us reason together. God the King, this holy God is saying, come on. Give me a chance. Come talk to me. Meet me. Bring me your sin. I will pardon you. Just come on, meet me. The same God who we have directly offended, the same God we have sinned against, is the God saying to me, come on, Troy. Come and meet me. I see all that baggage you have in tow. It's okay. I will give you rest. Our sins are like scarlet, and yet if we come to God, they become white as snow. Because our king is not just the judge, but he's also our substitute. And as we're there in the courtroom of heaven, with all the evidence of our sin behind us, Jesus Christ, the true king, stands up. He takes our sin and our guilt, and he pays the penalty for us. He is the one led to the back of the courtroom, arrested, bearing the wrath of the judge. He took the penalty that we deserved, the wrath of God, and he died, laid in a tomb. His heart stopped beating. 
On the third day, God raised him from the dead, showing that sin doesn't win, that guilt doesn't define, that it has been paid and there is pardon and freedom and life in Jesus, that though we had blood-stained hearts, Jesus made them white as snow. So come reason with Jesus. Come to him. Yet with all that sin and baggage and all that stuff that we are really good at tucking away in that private compartment in our memory, Bring all of that honestly to Jesus and he receives you and you can join him in his good land eating of the fruit of joy in the kingdom of God. And it's a serious and it's a terrifying thing to be found guilty before the king. But praise be to God that our king redeems us and he's begging you and inviting you to reason with him. So if you come with honest self awareness, you will find comfort in the king. That's the gospel. And this gospel is what brought forth this beautiful hymn lyric that we're going to sing right away here. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your holiness. We praise you that you are perfect and that there is no God like you. We praise that you love us despite our unholiness and our imperfection. I pray that even this morning that you will fill this congregation with joy and comfort. For we come as afflicted sinners. Help us come honestly, that you may comfort us and give us the grace we need. King Jesus, we love you. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song together.